Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right. Well, uh, hey, listeners, uh, we have another really solid interview uh, today. And uh, I guess we're kind of running the old truth dig circuit right now. Uh, we had Chris Hedges last week, uh, who some of you have probably already listened to that episode, which was was really solid. And uh, and now we've got the boss, uh, although he probably wouldn't like the term, uh, Robert Bob Shear, who, uh, you know, was senior editor over there, you know, founder you know co-founder just really started up the whole truth dig uh scene and and the thing that's interesting about bob is you know we have uh, more than a little of a personal relationship uh these days but i'm constantly learning about him and uh you know i'll mention it but we we just all watched uh the documentary on bob above the fold and uh you know i thought i knew everything about him and uh, I was just totally blown away by some of the aspects of his career. So let me just throw in, you know, uh, a relatively, you know, uh, circumscribed bio because there's so much to say. But, you know, uh, first off, you know, Bob and I share that peculiar New York City insider lingo, you know, whereby unlike me, who hails from what men of Bob's time and place would call the backwater of Staten Island. Uh, Bob was born and raised in an ironic twist on Sarah Palin's sentiment in, you know, the real New York uh, up in the Bronx. And uh, I think it's fair to say that his his immigrant family upbringing, working class, garment worker, mother and family, you know, bred in political activism and his education in New York City public schools all influenced what really was a remarkable career that that followed and, and continues to to roll on. So, you know, on the merits, let's just say that Bob's been in the journalism, writing and activism game for, I, I think, over 60 years. And one could argue, argue really that he's been in it since his days as, you know, what they call a red diaper baby in the 1940s Bronx. Uh, his columns appear in newspapers across the country. He's done in, in-depth interviews that have made the headlines famously the Playboy magazine interview in which Jimmy Carter confessed to the sin Reagan Clinton and he has a whole book about his interviews with the presidents as well as other prominent political and cultural figures so from 64 to 69 he was a Vietnam correspondent managing editor and editor editor in chief of Ramparts magazine which I learned a lot about in the documentary the influence it had on figures like Jane Fonda and Martin Luther King and we'll get to all that uh, then from 76 to 93 Bob was uh, a national correspondent for the LA Times uh, in 93, he then launched a nationally syndicated column based at the LA Times, and, and that ran for 12 years and is now uh, running at the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, Bob is the former co-host of the political radio program Left Right Center on KCRW. Uh, he now hosts Sheer Intelligence, uh, which I think I've been on three or four times, uh, a half hour 
uh, KCRW podcast again, where he interviews, you know, a variety of social, political, and cultural thinkers. Bob has written eight books. Uh, I'm not going to list them all, but notably and sort of relevant for our listeners and our topics, uh, The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijack 9-11 and Weakened America, and then most recently, uh, and I just finished, uh, They Know Everything About You, How Data Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Our Democracy. Uh, Bob is the clinical professor in communications at USC. I've been in his class a number of times. It's, it's really an experience. Uh, and the editor uh, of the Webby Award-winning political website, Truthdig, where I've you know written for many years. So to kind of quickly frame our relationship with Bob, uh, Bob started picking up my Tom Dispatch pieces at Truthdig, I want to say back in 2017 and 18, when I really first started getting into the game. I, I was still on active duty. Uh, that eventually turned into uh, him asking for some originals, which became a bi-weekly and then for at least almost two years, weekly columns. The thing about Bob is that he's willing to step outside what is typical or what people think is going to sell. And, and he had enough trust and faith in me, uh, probably against this better judgment, to really put together with me this profoundly rare, I mean, for the business, Truth Diggers history. You know, uh, it was a 38-part series. I was writing eight to 12,000 words sometimes, and, you know, he didn't bat an eyelash, and, and it was really something else that you don't see all over the web. So, uh, like I said, Bob is the subject of an incredible documentary, Above the Fold. Uh, I thought I knew him, especially after countless hours chatting and philosophizing together. Uh, in his downtown L.A. apartment uh, for a full week, actually, right before the pandemic outbreak. So uh, I'm either lucky or unlucky that I didn't get stuck there because I'd probably still be in the apartment. Uh, but anyway, finally, you know, Bob was seemingly uh, from watching the documentary and getting to know him at the center or at least significantly involved in just about every fight for peace, freedom or justice since the Second World War. Uh, he was born in 1936. He has seen a lot. Sorry to date him. Uh, just turned 84. Uh, he is, dare I say, for me, a, a solid boss, a good friend, great mentor, and, and really a treasure to free thinkers everywhere. So with that long, typically Danny verbose introduction, uh, thanks for taking the time, Bob. Thank you. Hey, by the way, if people are interested in that documentary, they can watch it for nothing on an outfit called Canopy dot com canopy with a k and all you got to have is some kind of library card any kind of library card and you can get and it's that's just one of thousands of really great documentaries that you could watch canopy is very good of the fold so absolutely please check it out so you know okay so last week like i said miraculously we managed to stay on time with chris you've got a little more time today um so here, here's what I'm thinking. We're, we're going to kind of kick this off uh, with me with a broad kind of half past, half present question that I think is relevant to the moment. And then after that, we're going to back up a little bit, uh, each ask you a few sequential questions related to, you know, sort of discrete periods in your career. And then, of course, how they relate, you know, to today before coming back to the present. Can you know, I just all, chop? Can, can I please just chop in there for a minute? <laughs> you mentioned 
the, one of my stories or interviews that got a lot of publicity, you know, uh, the 1976 presidential election, Jimmy Carter was at first an unknown governor from Georgia, he didn't even have a full time legislature, and he gained the nomination. And I spent a lot of time interviewing him. And the reason they gave me a lot of time, there's an old saying never hustle a hustler and i was trying to get time with him i was doing some interviews with playboy that was after ramparts and uh they wanted to do the interview because he was considered the ultimate square uptight born again baptist christian and he was trying to reach a, a broader democratic party audience so he gave me a lot of time it's a a good interview but what was interesting is the lust in the heart Part that got all the publicity was really a, a not a controversial statement. I mean, anybody who's gone through any kind of Christian education knows it begins with the concession that you're a sinner or a potential sinner, and then you have to struggle with it. So that's all he was saying. The controversial thing for the purpose of this interview is I was really concerned about Jimmy Carter being a hawk and getting us into more wars, because actually the Democrats got us into more wars uh, than the Republicans. And the Vietnam War was very much a Democrats' war, uh, Lyndon Johnson. And Jimmy Carter, when I pushed him and pushed him on this, because he was, after all, out of the military, you know, uh, 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 Navy and so forth, and seemed quite... Uh, you know, the Democratic Party, DNC types. Uh, and I pushed him. And at one point, he sort of exploded in anger. And I said, well, why wouldn't we expect that you might take us into another Vietnam? And he said, I wouldn't take us into another Vietnam because I would never lie to the American people the way Lyndon Johnson did. Now, when that interview came out, I happened to be on Air Force One uh, or whatever the plane was that he was flying. It wouldn't be Air Force One, but the one he was flying coming back from the Democratic Convention. And we were landing in uh, Dallas and Lady Bird Johnson was going to be waiting for him. Well, she was waiting at the airport to greet him. He was now the official Democratic nominee. And that interview came out. And while the lust quote got all the attention subsequently, the first controversy, because Sam Donaldson, who was this famous ABC interviewer, was waiting at the tarmac with his equipment. And the first thing he asked me when I got off the plane, did Jimmy Carter really say he would never, he wouldn't get us into another Vietnam because he wouldn't lie uh, to the American people the way Lyndon Johnson did? And I said, yes, that's, that was in the interview. And, and interestingly enough, that faded from controversy. That very explosive, honest statement, honest statement. Now, as you know, uh, <laughs> Jimmy Carter as president got us into the beginning of the Afghan war that you've experienced and everything else. But the fact is, it was a very strong statement. Lady Bird Johnson left the airport. She didn't greet him. And that should have been the subject of controversy and debate. But the media, uh, the fake news, <laughs> we think fake news just started uh, with Trump's avenger. We've had plenty of fake news. And the media really wasn't interested in Vietnam anymore. And, and uh, now they were, lust was the issue. That's so interesting. And it ties into the first thing I want to talk about, actually, you know, not just saying that. It does demonstrate, doesn't it, like you said, that 
issues of you know militarism and lying about getting us into wars i mean none of that was as controversial like you said as the sort of like personal sexual innuendo which really shouldn't have been a big thing and 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 you've seen and, and that that's my first question you know and a big surprise i want to talk history a bit but you know you you've seen so much so many different phases of like american empire american war making and the politics surrounding it so what i want to ask you is as you look at american imperialism and militarism in 2020 what commonalities and differences do you see from earlier errors that you both lived and covered and i'm thinking specifically of you know and you can go anywhere with this but early cold war the vietnam era the reagan years or or carter you know what have you seen and how does it connect well, it's an interesting moment because uh, we, you know, if you take Orwell's 1984, uh, we really don't have any serious military enemies. Uh, the Cold War, you know, uh, was built on the fiction that the uh, Soviets has the massive power. Uh, what they had was atomic weapons, and that could hold us in check. But, you know, as we all knew, and anyone, I, I spent a lot of time covering the Soviet Union and different at different times, including for the LA Times at one critical point when Gorbachev came in. And it was very clear that it was a crumbling economy and that it was a defensive uh, posture they were in. They just didn't want to give up their piece of empire, their empire, but they really were not in a position to be very aggressive. Uh, and the, the reality was that the Cold War was based on a fiction of a unified communism, international communism, and that had fallen apart. You know, the Sino-Soviet dispute actually preceded the Chinese Revolution. Uh, Mao was more sympathetic. Uh, I'm sorry, the Stalin was more sympathetic to Chiang Kai-shek than he was to Mao, and uh, they saw Mao as some kind of a wild, uh, you know, <laughs> rural uh, Trotskyist or something. You know, and uh, so there, there was no international communist movement that the Vietnamese were fiercely independent. And when we lost in Vietnam, they went to war with China, with communist China. The whole idea of the Vietnam War was to stop Chinese communism. We lose the war and, and the Vietnamese, instead of invading San Diego, uh, go have a big battle with China on their border. And they're still fighting over islands and meaningless islands and everything else. So the whole idea of this unified, powerful, ideologically driven enemy was a lie from the beginning, and everybody knew it. Uh, and certainly the wartime agreements that Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin uh, had signed off on accepted this uh, area of buffer zone between Germany and Russia of Eastern Europe. That's not democratic and it's not self-determination, but that's what they did agree to at Tehran, at Yalta, uh, Potsdam and everything else. And uh, so it was an invented fiction. The problem with imperialism is it doesn't pay for most people. Uh, people like yourself and your uh, colleagues there are the first line of victims, people will actually have to fight these wars. The civilians in these countries, there's a major group of victims. But even the average American who may not go to war when we don't have a draft still has to pay for these things. So you don't have a war on poverty because you have a Vietnam War, no matter whatever LBJ's intentions were. And I think the imperial model has run out of steam. 
we have a perfect example in the Chinese communists deciding a military imperialism doesn't pay and they are pursuing a capitalist road. You know, they're making better products and, you know, we accuse them of stealing patents. Well, what's new? I mean, that's what capitalism was all about, was seizing some idea and exploiting it. So the fact is, you know, Russia's crumbled, Soviet Union. Uh, and, and so the only enemy you really have is China. And China doesn't want to play that game. Uh, they want to beat you in the marketplace, uh, you know, 5G and everything. So this virus came along at a very uh, important moment. Uh, now Trump has his invisible enemy. And instead of dealing with it as a medical problem, which, of course, uh, means, you know, having a unified world stance behind science and reason and providing health care and caring about everybody because the virus knows no language and the virus can travel across borders and everything. Trump is tried to play the jingoism card of, you know, Chinese virus and uh, invisible enemy and so forth. But the fact is, the, the traditional imperialist model where you seize markets and you seize resources and so forth was a loser when for French colonialism, you know this, you're a great historian, uh, for the Spanish, for the English. It's what Washington, George Washington warned us against. The people who did our constitution believed in an internal uh, uh, North American imperialism and then towards Mexico. They didn't believe in that European world market, you know, conquer India, conquer Turkey and all that. And uh, but, so by the time, uh, you know, even uh, I know I'm being long winded, but I'm just sort of giving you my overview. By the time the first president Bush comes in, he knows that the Cold War is over and there can't be a new Cold War. And even Rumsfeld, I wrote a book about that called uh, The Pornography of Power. And I have this speech in there that Donald Rumsfeld gave the day before 9-11. And in that, he talks about this big new enemy. He's now Secretary of Defense. He talks about the big new enemy we have. And he describes it in Orwellian terms as omnipresent and powerful and corrupt and with an endless money and wasting lives. And then the, the, the point of it, he says the enemy is not Russia, China, it's not outside, it's here at the Pentagon. It's one of the most important speeches any politician or certainly any leader of the Pentagon has ever given and has been all but ignored and it was the day before 9-11. And basically he was saying and, and the first President Bush was saying we got to cut the military by a quick 30-40%, the game is over, we have to learn to compete in other ways and so forth. 9-11 comes along and it's like now the, the, the uh, virus you know, oh, we can have a cold war because we can find a new enemy. And that new enemy first became terrorism. And so then you have this uh, unjustified attack on Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. You know all about that. And that runs out of steam. People don't want these uh, wars anymore. Uh, even Donald Trump has said, look how much blood and resources were wasted on the Mideast. So now you got the virus, and that's the current, will become the current excuse for ramping up the surveillance state, every state in the world. The Chinese have provided the model, <laughs> how you can right, right. 
You could check on everybody's personal habits, their friends, their reading, where they ate and everything. Well, our government excels in that. And you really have now a kind of medical justification for the Orwellian state. So it's a frightening moment, but it's also a positive moment uh, because the limits of that approach have been demonstrated. The jingoism has been exposed. Fortunately, this virus didn't come from Mexico or we'd have a pogrom here. You know, Bush would have gone, I would push, Trump would have gone nuts. You know, imagine if the virus had come from Mexico, we would have had a, a 50 foot uh, wall, you know, a high wall. So, uh, but the fact of the matter is, I think the internet is both the worst and best of all worlds. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, and, and you're a very good example, uh, Major Danny, you've been able to use the internet to, to get out a totally different narrative than the establishment wanted. And I think most of the American public is really in a quite skeptical mood about the need for ever more uh, a military operations, certainly even Trump has given the back of the hand to that. Hello? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Kagan. Um, thank you, Bob. Uh, I'm Kagan. I was in the NSA, or in the Navy, sorry. I worked in the Navy with NSA um, and uh, during Obama's first term and the beginning of his second term and uh, doing elect uh, intelligence operations in the Middle East and Yemen and Syria and Somalia. Um, and uh, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to bring up the point about um, how do you think, you kind of brought this up just about militarism, but like how do you think it is going to change in light of the virus and the fact that we can't, like we physically can't be doing the operations that we're doing now without, you know, uh, putting our service members at risk. Like, so how do you think that will change as well, well as, oh, sorry. Um, no, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> And on, on top of that, uh, given your lengthy experience with the tactics of activism, how do we fight militarism with these social distancing practices in place? Well, okay, this is going to get me in trouble with all of my knee-jerk uh, Democratic Party friends. Uh, but I think so far, Trump has not used the... Um, surveillance state argument and the militarist argument uh, to excess. <laughs> he's used it. He's always flirting with it. But he, he knows at this stage of our history, and particularly because he's such a much criticized, we have one good thing going for us these days, that the uh, news organizations, the establishment news organizations, hate this guy so much because he attacks them. <laughs> he, he plays the bully and he does what he did on TV, only he dares to attack the mainstream media. Uh, and uh, they don't like him. And they see this as a matter of their own survival and their legitimacy. Uh, he's not the most effective liar as president. Uh, in fact, in many ways, he's the least effective because he's so observed. He's so challenged. You can't watch his press conference every day without CNN or MSNBC, you know, having this uh, scrolling thing about how he lies. Uh, 
They didn't have that when when Lyndon Johnson was giving a press conference, when he announced the need to bomb North Vietnam because of the second Gulf of Tonkin attack. There was nothing scrolling below saying the evidence shows there was no attack, which there was even at that moment. Uh, the admiral, uh, 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 captain on the ship, uh, and uh, even Admiral Sharp down in San Diego and Navy, since you're from the Navy, they were all saying, wait a minute, there's no evidence that this is the second Gulf of Tonkin. There's no evidence of an attack. Well, you didn't see a scroll ever when Lyndon Johnson was lying about Vietnam, saying, oh, the president has just distorted this or lied about this, or <laughs> what you get now. So you have a president who's very much observed, you know, maybe in a second term, if he wins, uh, he'll have more chutzpah or more arrogance, uh, even for him. But the fact of the matter is, we live now in, a, in an environment which our executive branch is subjected to quite a bit of criticism. And maybe that's the reason Trump really hasn't played. Yes, he's invoked the invisible enemy. He's played Chinese jingoism, which is, you know, really quite dangerous. But basically, the military so far is being used in a constructive way. The Army Corps of Engineers building hospitals. We don't have martial law. We don't have troops out here in the street in Los Angeles enforcing a curfew. Uh, you know, now, if we get more plagues and we get because of climate change, we get flooding and we get mayhem. Then you're in the situation Germany was in between the wars. Uh, you know, so far, the economy is being floated with all this borrowed money. And, you know, the stock market actually last week or so has had a good week before we record this. You know, uh, and so Trump is actually using the military in a, in a constructive uh, way. And even including uh, military medical people are being treated with respect and asking to treat people who are not veterans or are not in the military, which is a good thing. And so, but, but uh, the whole world is right now following the Chinese model. And, and nobody wants to give the Chinese credit, but they, in fact, uh, you know, this is one point, almost 1.4 billion people. And they're now down the list of fatalities. Whatever you think about the figures, maybe they cooked the figures. But the fact about it is it's, they restricted it to one province. They kept uh, the death down. And they do it by using uh, the surveillance techniques of the Internet that are available to every government. You know, they're cheap. They're easy to do. And that's really quite alarming because people want security. People are scared. And, uh, and they're quite willing in every society to sacrifice individual freedom if they think their security depends upon that. That's why George Washington warned us about the impostures of pretended patriotism, because in the name of national security, patriotism, uh, get the enemy, whether the enemy's a virus or he's a Chinese communist, uh, people will readily give up their freedom in every society. And, and what the founders of this country, for all their imperfections, were painfully aware of was how easy you can squander individual freedom. And that's why we have the restraints of our Constitution. Hey, Bob. I'm Henry. I'm hey, should I say this is going to be on the test? That's what I do when I go on too long with my students. 
I certainly hope not. Danny likes lots of essay questions, so he won't he won't give us multiple choice anymore. He knows. Oh. That we um. So I, I was just saying, I'm I'm Henry. I'm a former U.S. Army MP. I deployed uh, to Iraq twice. I helped train uh, Iraqi police and other missions like that. Um, you've spoken with many powerful leaders in the U.S. over the years. I was particularly struck by your interaction with Ronald Reagan and his comments about the the laughable feasibility of, of the United States surviving a nuclear war. My question is about some of the interviews you didn't get. If you were given the chance to interview, say, George W. Bush today in April 2020, what would you ask him? Are there any other leaders you specifically wished you'd have been given the opportunity to interview? And how do you think we as Americans can work to escape the cult of personality regarding our leaders? Um, you know, Trump, Trump supporters have some very odd ideas about their alleged favorite president, but being caught up in a cult of personality happens to anybody. We've often talked on the podcast about how Barack Obama was going to be the savior of the left, or so most of his supporters believed at the time, only to have him become one of the most neoliberal imperialist, warmongering, craptastic presidents of all time. Yeah, and also in, in, intimidating whistleblowers and critics of oh, any of that. Yeah, um, despite being a constitutional law professor. Look, I call my book, that's a different book, my collection of interviews with these people, uh, almost all of whom I interviewed as they were about to become president. They were running and they were front runners. And the most of them were done for the Los Angeles Times, which had a lot of clout in those days. And they were going to needed to win or do well in the California primary and West Coast. And I was the designated interviewer for the LA Times. So I had access to him. For instance, the first President Bush was after he won the Iowa primary. And then we were flying up to New Hampshire uh, with Ronald Reagan. I interviewed him before I was ever at the LA Times when I was at Ramparts when he was running for governor the first time. And I think I developed a good connection with him because I felt people were making uh, a mistake about Reagan is the same mistake they've made about Trump. Uh, they were making them cartoon figures. In Reagan's case, he was just the movie actor, lightweight and everything. And I knew that was not true. And I spent time with him when he was running for governor. I disagreed with him. I was one of the students that he tear gassed and I got arrested by <laughs> the county, Alameda County uh, sheriffs and had a horrendous experience in jail where uh, a, a, a lot of people were beaten and everything. So I was not ready to give Reagan a free pass, but I knew he was not dumb. I don't think actors are dumb. And I knew uh, that he had an agenda and uh, his agenda really was that of GE, of the large corporations, and the tension in the man was betraying his own origins. He'd come from a, a, a working class background. Uh, his family has suffered terribly in the Depression. I myself was born in 1936 at the height of the Depression. My parents were garment workers. My father lost his job the day. I was like, well, Reagan had a very similar experience. His father went to work for the New Deal in order to keep the family 
going. And they loved Roosevelt. They believed the government had an obligation to take care of people. And remember that Roosevelt was the guy who wanted to avoid war at first, you know, uh, and was very reluctant to get into to the Second World War, was denounced for that. But so Ronald Reagan was really torn uh, by the gap between his own early life experience and what his new sponsors, whether they were the Warner Brothers or uh, they were GE, where he became a propagandist, and he drank the Kool-Aid for them. So, uh, but in my, uh, and just to complete the Reagan thing, which I do discuss in that movie, uh, he was disillusioned with GE because of the savings and loan scandal when he was president. And he had visited GE when it was still a pretty good company. He went to every plant. He was, you know, their advertising spokesperson. And they had a very strong leftist union, the United Electrical Workers, and then the IW, International United Electrical, whatever they were. Uh, After that, they had strong union, great benefits, good working conditions. They made good products. They made good light bulbs and refrigerators and so forth. And then when he was president, you had the savings and loan scandal. And he was shocked to discover that GE was up to its eyeballs in bad practices, uh, including GE Capital later, which was involved with the whole banking uh, meltdown. But it was also the savings and loans guys that he knew, and he believed in that deregulation, and he saw that it didn't work very well. So he ended up being on economic matters a bit more conservative, quite a bit more conservative than the, the than Bill Clinton later, and also he. What were the big wars of Reagan? There was uh, Grenada, Grenada. Uh, you know, he really you know talked a big game about militarism, but at the end of the day, uh, the shock I think about Ronald Reagan and a lot of his more vicious critics blame it on Alzheimer's or something, which I don't think is, was the case. And I discussed that with Nancy Reagan. I knew them because I interviewed him when he was running for president. And I got along with Reagan despite our disagreements. Uh, but Reagan opened the door to Gorbachev. And he really believed uh, that we could get rid of uh, those nuclear weapons. And he believed that he uh, could do business with Gorbachev, and that really shocked the neoconservatives. But this is a long-winded answer to your question about who I would like to interview, because my view is, and they called the book Playing President, and I had a chance to talk to these guys while they were still uh, trying out for the parts. And, and, and I used the theater analogy. Uh, it, you're, you're playing at leadership. You know, we don't have serious adults watching the store when you get to that level of politics, you know, where you really, you're the leader and you really wonder what's going to happen to this person I draft or I send off to war or the people I'm going to bomb or the people I'm going to ignore because I don't care about their poverty or so forth. So you have a journey in which the successful politicians, thanks to the role of money, to mass media, are basically trying out for a part. And by the time they get to be president, they don't know which end is up. They don't know what they believe anymore. And and there are moments where they get a glimpse of it. 
you know. Uh, but the fact is they've been on the stage. They've been throwing out the one-liners. And so there's almost no use in interviewing these people once they're president or a leader. Uh, the exception I would make is when they are no longer leaders. And I think I had a, I wrote a profile of Richard Nixon 10 years after he was forced out of office. And then I, he liked it so much. He's the only one who liked my profile, which was not flattering, I didn't think. But he invited me to come talk to him. Well, he was pretty lonely and desperate at that point. And he, you know, so we had a good conversation. But to answer your question, I think uh, there isn't any magic to an interview. Uh, it is, go back to that never hustle a hustler. Usually the interesting things that I was told were because they wanted somebody in their organization felt it was important to present themselves in a different way, a different kind of propaganda, a different kind of posture, and that I had done my homework. So when they started down that road, I knew the contradictions. I knew, I'll give you a very good example, take it away from American politics. Uh, I, I did a long uh, interview, I mean long, uh, 10, 11 o'clock at night it started, it ended about seven in the morning with Fidel Castro in a very intimidating circumstance. I had been, been told I could have an interview. I went down to Havana, it was the night that uh, <clears throat> Russia invaded, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia in, uh, I believe, 68. Uh, and uh, uh, I, they let, had me in a hotel for a month, and then these guys came with guns and said, come with us. And uh, I had already packed my bags. I was planning to leave the next day, and they took me from one safe house to another. And finally, um, I said, look, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm pissing in the bathroom, and this guy walks in, tall bearded guy, it's Fidel Castro, you know, <laughs> and I, I lost my temper with him. I said, God damn, I've been here a month and my whole family's falling apart. My magazine is falling apart, Rampart. And you, you've been playing, it was obviously, I just come from playing basketball. And so, you know, we had a very honest discussion, but it was, a, he wouldn't let me take any notes because it was the night the Russians, Soviets had invaded Czechoslovakia, so he hadn't really figured out his position. He first was very critical, and then he apologized. You know, he he lined up with the people paying him money, which was the Soviets, and uh, justified it somehow. But that night, I had a good discussion with him because I knew. I knew some of the stuff that was going on, for instance, rounding up homosexuals and the UMAP camps. I knew the contradictions in the Cuban revolution, the promises and the reality. I knew something about what Batista had done, what the United States had done. So it made for an interv interesting interview. It could have just been a waste of time if I hadn't had that background. So, you know, my own view is I've had very good interviews with Major Danny, right? Uh, very good. Uh, but I think in part it was because I knew what I was asking about, you know, and I, I don't think people have to be famous to give you the insight. So let me take it back. Uh, can I just go on to finish with George W. Bush? Of course, of course. Yeah. Okay. So what happened with George W. Bush is I did know him. I, I you know, I covered his father. I covered other campaigns. And so I observed the guy when no one thought he was going to run for president. They thought it was going to be Jeb. 
Bush. And he was, you know, what you all know, a good time Charlie and kind of a lightweight and, you know, uh, I mean, the, the rap on him is accurate, you know, uh, short attention span and glib. Uh, and uh, however, the interesting thing was it goes back to the point I mentioned before. Uh, I knew also because I, I knew I had encountered Cheney and Rumsfeld and all these people. And I knew that because of uh, Baker's in, in influence, and he was a real moderate, and the father had gotten to a pretty moderate position, H. Walker Bush, and so forth, that the people around George W. Bush, including, ironically, Cheney and Rumsfeld at that point, thought the Cold War was a loser, and that there was an opportunity uh, to uh, spread American imperial power through just being more effective economically and better propaganda, soft power, and so forth. And that the American people were not really inclined uh, to go off to any more wars. They were disgusted. So if 9-11 hadn't happened, and we could discuss all the theories about why it was not prepared for better or how it happened, but it was a great gift to cold warriors. You had a traumatized nation, uh, fear. You could blame somehow, uh, you know, an enemy, a unified Muslim enemy, which was absurd because Iraq was the one place Al-Qaeda couldn't operate, couldn't function, but you could lie about it with impunity. And by the way, the mass media led by the New York Times uh, engaged in the lying, right? Uh, and uh, Judy Miller and all those people had sent out this garbage about Saddam Hussein being the, somehow connected with 9-11, when in fact, if Al-Qaeda showed up in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, they would be uh, tortured and arrested and gone. You know, So uh, what happened was it suddenly became the gift that wouldn't stop giving 9-11. And that's why you guys got swept up into uh, these ridiculous uh, invasions, you know, uh, painful, destructive of human life, costly change the whole nature of our culture and our politics in disastrous ways. It goes back to my slogan, you don't have adults watching a store. You have opportunists, you have people out for short-term gain, they're paid by campaign contributors who want Boeing to do well, and they want business to do well, and they want to have leverage in the world. And so you, they, they then do these things, and they think they're convinced they can get away with it on the cheap. They never can. And uh, that's the dialectic of it. The public rebels, and then they try to find another way. And that's where, what Trump is right now. He's been this floundering figure. He believes in trade. He believes in business. He doesn't want to get off in any uh, stupid wars that you can't win. He's pretty clear about that. But he also knows you need an enemy to blame all your problems on. And so now China and the Chinese virus, that'll be the enemy, but it won't work because the virus won't speak uh, Mandarin. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. 
uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a minute and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. You know, so much of that is, there's just so much to unpack there, and you're I think you're dead on, you know, just even from the recent historical point of view. I'm going to come back to Castro because that was my next question. But before that, I'm going to, you know, let, let's upset, you know, Narda and Kay in your house and, and then all our liberal friends a little more. Um, and I want to press on one one more question. You know, you mentioned Reagan. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My wife is a tough cookie and a great journalist and was the associate editor of the LA Times. And just because she disagrees with me about Trump all the time doesn't mean she's wrong. And uh, Oh, no, no. There's a, no, lot, no, no. there's a lot to hate about Trump, you know. I, I understand it. Uh, but you can't be you, – you, you also have to be objective, for God's sake. I mean, scientific. And, and Trump, I think, uh, you know, they, they, what they're doing is the biggest favor they can do for Trump. Uh, the Democrats, they they paint them with such a dark image that the average person knows, hey, wait a minute. You know, he's doing a pretty good job now. Uh, maybe he responded late, but come on. Didn't the governor and, and mayor of New York and the governor, why were people using the subway? Come on, Danny, you and I grew up with that subway. They used to pack us in there like sardines. You got a virus going around. I don't care if it was a, a simple flu. Maybe you don't use the subways. You got a pandemic emerging. When did the subways stop? Right? That's oh, the you know, well, you know that you, way to transmit. That's why New York became the hottest spot in the world. <laughs> tragically, because what you you insisted on keeping with a model of work and communication and, and and transportation that was a disaster to anybody who even knew one word about what was happening in, in China. 
<laughs> well, you know that. Uh, well, I agree with that. You know that I love Narda, and, and sometimes I, uh, you know, I, sometimes I agree with her uh, when you guys uh, discuss Trump. Uh, so no, obviously, I was kidding, but you know, I do think that there's something here with with Reagan and Trump that you brought up, and, and this connection is not made very often, but maybe it should be. How quickly we've forgotten what they used to say about Reagan. Um, I think that people have to be able to hold two ideas in their head at the same time. So that goes for Reagan, that goes for Trump. So, you know, to caveat, I mean, I've, I've made a, a living saying a lot of awful things about Trump. Uh, and, and the same goes for Reagan. I mean, when it came to Latin America and the Contras, when it came to apartheid in South Africa, I mean, his policies were horrific. But you do bring up the point that for the most part, the overt use of American military force was relatively rare. And, and something I'm getting ready to write about that really no one ever talks about is Reagan in Lebanon, you know, which was a, a tragedy uh, and a mistake early in his first administration. And yet, you know, Reagan, the tough guy, Reagan, the, the posturing evil empire guy, didn't really blanch about pulling us out of Lebanon when it didn't make sense anymore. Uh, after those Marines had gotten blown up, after a few other attacks on the French. And so, you know, the same can go for Trump, who I think has not followed through on a lot of his speeches and a lot of his campaign rhetoric. What I want to ask is, do you think that sometimes, you know, the whole Nixon, only Nixon can go to China thing, does, does a Republican, does a, does a cold warrior or a tough guy posturing Reagan or Trump actually end up having more, you know, space and leeway and ability to end some you know nonsense whether it's lebanon or some of the things that we see is the potential more there with an overt sort of tough guy republican well but that's a cop out in a way because it it gives the democrats an out you know uh as was said earlier uh, about barack obama embracing a hard line on the uh you know uh going after whistleblowers and what they did in Syria with Hillary Clinton and, and uh, uh, Libya. I mean, it's just terrible. I want to cut to the chase. You, you are three veterans of, of war combat. I'm a chicken shit journalist, okay? And I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll fess up. You know, my encounter with war has been a, a scattershot. Yes, I, I went to Vietnam, but I, I could get out anytime I wanted. I went to Cambodia. I went quite a few times to Vietnam. I was actually in the north, but it was always under relatively controlled space. Uh, there were some moments where it wasn't so. I was, uh, I, I, I'm just bringing this up. I mean, I've encountered the carnage of war. I saw what the bombing of North Vietnam did because I was in North Vietnam at that time. I, I saw the Six-Day War at the end. I was in both Egypt and Israel. Uh, I have been in other situations where, you know, uh, uh, spent a, a night or two in a, a jail in Algeria. I, I, you know, as a journalist, I've encountered totalitarian power. I uh, actually spent a night in Lithuania uh, in a communist jail, uh, you know, so, but it's not the same as somebody who's in the military and is expected to follow orders and has no choice. And that's your, the story of you three guys. And so, I'm not going to speak for you. However, what you have brought to the table, and I'm speaking now more about Major Danny because you've been in my class, is the reality check that it's not a fucking game. 
that it's not moving pieces on a chessboard, that people get hurt, they get killed, buildings get blown up, children die, okay? Now, as a journalist, I could witness some of that, okay? I witnessed it, but I didn't pull the trigger, you know? And I didn't face the Nuremberg implication. My uncle, who was, I'm half Jewish, half German Protestant, I've spent a lot of conversations with my German relatives about why I can't have conversations with my Lithuanian Jewish relatives because my German relatives killed them all, you know? So I, I, I've been in the middle of this kind of, of thing, but not the way you three guys have. And the real question is not why Republicans do go to China, Democrats don't, you know, the question is, why does anybody not do the right thing when they have power? I mean, the whole point of Nixon going to China was that we could get along with China and there was never a reason not to get along with China. Okay, never. It was not our business whether they threw out Chiang Kai-shek or wanted to be communist. They were nationalists. They wanted their people to live better. They might have had a lousy idea or a good idea. But the fact of the matter is, China was never the threat to American security or European security. That, that was always a lie from the first hour. And the Korean War was fought over that lie because we didn't give a shit what happened in Korea. It was an excuse to, to cross the Yellow River and, and go after Chinese communism, which has succeeded just uh, a year before or what have you. Uh, and, and so war has always been used as a gimmick, okay? And, and you can't justify, you know, say, oh, uh, you know, Nixon did it because he was Republican. Why didn't Lyndon Johnson do the right thing? If you go to the Johnson Library, or you can even get it online, you can get the tape of the conversation uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson is having with Senator Russell from Georgia, who was head of the Foreign Relations Committee. It's on the tape. And it's, he's running against Goldwater. And he says, this is Lyndon Johnson, before the Gulf of Tonkin, before bombing North Vietnam, the whole thing. He says, uh, you know, he said, I have a young man guarding me now who's in the military. And what if I have to send him to Vietnam? He says to Senator Russell, he says, what if I have to send him to Vietnam and he gets killed? What do I say to his wife and children? I know this war makes no sense. I know there's no argument. He said, what do I say? And then he says to Senator Russell, do you know of any reason that we should be in Vietnam? He's saying it to the leading Democratic foreign policy, Southern Dixiecrat, uh, somewhat from Georgia. He say, and Senator Russell says, no, I don't. So here's the president of the United States, the key foreign policy guy in the Senate, and Fulbright felt the same way uh, soon after or by that time. And, and yet, yet they escalate this war. And you got Ron Kovic, my good friend down there, you know, in, in, uh, here in California, uh, right near the airport. And he's been paralyzed all these years. You know, he also speaks in my class. He was sent after Johnson said that. So what we're really talking about is cynicism, and it's disgusting. And, and anybody tries to say, oh, you couldn't do this or you could do that. Bullshit. You had the right to, to extend the war in which uh, the conservative estimate is what? McNamara said uh, three, four million people died, but then after his tenure, millions more. You got, what, five, six million 
Indo-Chinese people died and 59,000 Americans over a war that the president of the United States and the leading Democrat in the Senate uh, could have stopped in a minute. And they said they know of no reason for justification. That's really all you have to know about the whole Vietnam War is that conversation. And it applies to going into Libya and knocking out Gaddafi. It goes all of it. It's mischief making. It's done for craven political superficial reasons it has nothing to do with patriotism has nothing uh, to do with national security and time after time they do it wrong and they do it as wrong as these overtly totalitarian regimes you look at the whole history of the cold war russia soviet russia crazy totalitarian soviet russia was probably on the right side as often as we were you know and on the wrong side uh, no more often than we were maybe even had a better record, you know? Uh, they didn't ki kill Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, you know, uh, the way we did. They didn't overthrow Allende in Chile. Well, well, that's, well, that's just it, Bob. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, my question isn't so much, or my point had nothing to do with thinking, oh, the Republicans are good, Trump is good. I mean, it, the, what I'm saying is this is the sickness that you're identifying that folks who know better you know because they often did like you mentioned with johnson they don't do the right thing uh and so we're left in a situation where you know mass media or even that some of the history books will praise the nixons for going to china or in you know in my case giving some credit to reagan for eventually pulling out of lebanon but he shouldn't have been there in the first place uh and, and all of this and yet the, the disease, it seems, of, of the American cult of personality of the American imperial presidency that, you know, uh, Henry brought up earlier seems to be that uh, they will only take any risk and, and pull out of something or, or not escalate something if they feel that they've got enough political top cover, whether that's from their tough guy personality or, or any of this. And so if they, if they think they can get away with it, maybe against, you know, after trying everything else, they'll do the right thing. Uh, so that's certainly not a, uh, a positive on Reagan or, or Trump. Uh, but I think that you answered the question actually better than I could have asked it because what you're showing, I think, is, look, we can't give a pass to anybody. Right. Uh, and I think that's been sort of the story uh, of your, you know, of your journalism and your writing is that we, we don't give a pass to an Obama. We don't give a pass to Reagan or or to anybody. Uh, there, there are so many times and you mentioned the Soviets. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a piece on U.N. voting right now and it's it's a nightmare. You know, I thought I knew this stuff. And then you look and you say, you know, I'm doing the statistics on thousands of votes that we vetoed and abstained on. And the Soviets, they don't have a perfect record by any means. But. God damn if they weren't on the right side of history more often than we were, uh, like you mentioned. So yeah, I think that's key. And so I, my, I'm going to ask a question that goes back to Cuba, but only in the sense that I think it gets at your point uh, to some extent. You know, you met Castro. Uh, you were in Cuba before that, right? Before you met Castro, I believe. Yeah, I went um, to Cuba in the summer of 60. Uh, the Cuban Revolution was January 59. And I was teaching, uh, at, I was TA, teaching assistant at Cal. And then I went back to teach at City College in New York, uh, where you should have gone instead of West Point to get a good education. And 
I'm just kidding. And yeah, you're uh, probably right about that. No, no, you got a great education. I'll never, I'll never take anything away from that. Uh, but anyway, I did teach there in the summer, and I saw a little poster on the wall saying you can go to Cuba for 25 bucks a week if you can get there and cut sugarcane or something. And so I had my wife at the time, great woman, Serena, and we got in our little Volkswagen and took the long way back to California. We went by way of uh, uh, Key West and got on a little plane with a bunch of drunken American Legion guys who were still thinking it was the old Cuba. And they were going to party and Used, uh, you know, get involved with prostitutes or whatever they had in mind, or maybe they were going to go to a Catholic cathedral and pray. I don't know, or maybe both. But anyway, uh, they were drunk by the time we arrived, and then we uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time. And I was there when, uh, just when the U.S. put down the economic blockade on Cuba. And why? Because uh, Castro was a nationalist. Uh, he wasn't a communist. The Communist Party had opposed him until six months before he won. Uh, they actually uh, had been more sympathetic to Batista. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Castro uh, was uh, definitely a nationalist, wild nationalist. And uh, not like Che Guevara, he wasn't bent on exporting the revolution. That was the whole split between Castro and Che Guevara. Castro wanted to make Cuba into this paradise. He, he believed in it. He believed the fruit and the, everything, the weather and the women and the whole thing. The music of Cuba was the best in the whole world. So he was like a Tito-type nationalist. And, uh, you know, uh, and we read it wrong. And decided to have a whole Cold War going with uh, Cuba, and then bring the Russians in, and that's that's the history. But uh, I was there at a time. It's in that movie above the fold, where the irony was that the Cuban Communist paper, well, then became the Communist paper. Revolution was the paper of the of, of Castro's movement. Had this literary supplement on Mondays. Uh, Lunas de Revolucion, which featured the American Beats, Kerouac and Ginsburg and Ferlinghetti. And their whole thing was this revolution was supposed to free up young people and so forth. And then because they got dragged into the Cold War, it went off into a, a different model. Well, you know, that's, I think that we're seeing Cuba suddenly jump into the news a little bit or especially right before the pandemic you know because you had bernie mention the education and and then there was the whole kind of apartheid connection which most people don't know where you know biden was telling those lies about meeting mandela and or getting arrested on the way and so you know you, I, I love the castro stories that's why I, I knew we had to bring them up and i'm glad you did but you know you look at cuba today and you mentioned how there's like a misunderstanding of monolithic communism that you mentioned earlier uh, with the Cold War, you know, there's really not a lot left of that, you know, communist world. And, and even Cuba doesn't fit it completely. But, you know, how do you look at Cuba today? I mean, and what are what do Americans continue to get wrong in this time of Corona, right? Yeah, where Cuba's uh, jumping back in. Major Danny, I, I know you've been a professor uh, hist uh, taught history at West Point. And normally, I think you're the you, I think you're the sharpest historian we have writing right now, okay? However, I just think you made a big error. Did I lose you already? No, no, please go ahead, please go ahead. <laughs> it's interesting, because when you said 
the communism blah, blah, blah. The fact is, communism of the caricature has just about disappeared from history. But communism of the caricature was a denial of everything Marx had ever written or Communist Manifesto. Because remember, Communist Manifesto, a thin little pamphlet, I had to point this out to people in the old Soviet Union when I wrote a review for Moscow News of Gorbachev's book on perestroika. And I quoted from the Communist Manifesto where Marx paid tribute to capitalism for ending the idiocy of rural life, building the great cities. So Marx did not challenge the achievements of capitalism. He challenged that it was built on the sweat and blood of ordinary workers and that they didn't share the wealth and therefore created the contradictions that would lead to class struggle. And this socialism that they were talking about would come after the success of capitalism, right? And the imperialist model would explode. Now, ironically, that's what's happened with China. China was this misplaced, as was Russia, uh, use of Marxism because the revolution was supposed to come in advanced countries like Germany or England or the United States, not in uh, rural countries like Russia and China with all their problems. So Marxism got perverted by people like Stalin and Mao to be justification for what they were going to do, which was basically avoid capitalism, avoid its growth and investment and everything else and develop what became dictatorships of not the proletariat, but of the party and uh, became a caricature of the whole thing, an oppressive, uh, vicious caricature. However, the odd thing is that somehow the most the richest uh, population wise country, uh, poor by virtue of its population, poor by virtue of its uh, lack of resources, particularly oil, uh, exhausted farmland. I'm speaking of some experience having been a fellow in the Center for Chinese Studies at the University of California in 1963. I believe I got the year right, when we thought China could never develop. Well, somehow or other, this communist thing <laughs> and the same communist party with its same method of organization, democratic centralism, top down in the villages, in the factories and so forth, turns out to be a system of government that, first of all, was able to co control this virus once it got going more effectively than evidently any other country because they have the organization, they have the surveillance, they can get push people around. Yes, it's a terrible model in terms of freedom and democracy, but in terms of containing a, a pandemic, it turns out to be the one that everybody's following. Everybody's saying you have to stay in your house and you have to follow our rules and so forth. And this communist label, same communist party, uh, still quoting the same ideology, still talking about Marx and Lenin and <laughs> Mao Zedong and everything, has actually built what may turn out to be the most successful, uh, from an economic point of view, capitalist model. Nobody ever wants to examine that. Not only was the Cold War fraudulent about Chinese militarism or Russian militarism being inevitable and conquest and building an empire, but it was fundamentally wrong about the capacity 
of those societies, particularly China, to change. Vietnam is another example. Vietnam is one of the uh, emerging tigers of, of, of what was once the third world, right? People who talk about taking their business from China, where are they taking to? Vietnam, you know, another communist-run country. So the reason I was criticizing you ever so in a friendly way as a historian, why only use the communist label since they still use it, they're still run by a communist party. They still claim adherence to some kind of ideology of communism. Why use that label when it fits the overtly totalitarian, militaristic, economically incompetent model, which is what China was, chaotic, you know, with a heavy dose of anarchy and madness. Why not use it now when in the name of the same ideology, they're actually producing a very successful uh, capitalist model, you know, which, by the way, probably is moving more rapidly to developing the middle class that the Tuckville talked about. This, they've probably got about three, four hundred million people who are actually in or close to a middle class now out of their one point four billion, uh, but also one that has absorbed the main idea of freedom in the in the advanced West, which is consumer sovereignty. You know, the main idea we have now of being free is to spend your money on all the toys and contraptions and property and business that you want, you know? And that and towards that end, that's what my book about, uh, you know, they know everything about you, the surveillance state is about, we're willing to give up personal freedom. We're willing to say, okay, the FBI can know everything about me, what I've read, what movies I watch, who I meet with. I'll trust them. Why? Because they'll let me shop and they'll be more effective. I can yelp. I can get reviews. I can uh, get advertising, targeted advertising. So in fact, communism has emerged as actually maybe uh, the main model for uh, organizing society. It's not a model I like. I'm still with the founders of the American Constitution, not with them on slavery and not with them on male chauvinism, but nonetheless with the idea of individualism. But, you know, uh, the Chinese communists with the same label, same party organization, same claim on ideology are actually uh, quite effective on being capitalists and maybe economic imperialists. They're not going to do it with the military, but they're going to have the silk route, you know, road, and they're, they're going to uh, invest in other countries, including Australia, as well as throughout Africa. And uh, maybe they are the new uh, economically oriented imperialism, that maybe it's a more effective model from that point of view of profit and wealth aggregation than the one we're hanging on to, which is this weird mixture of militarism and uh, salesmen, which is what Trump embodies. Trump is, first of all, a salesman, wants people to move into his hotels, wants to make investment. On the other hand, he's a bully and a cop and a militarist and wants to beat people over the head, whether they're because they're undocumented or this or so forth. So he embodies this contradiction of where uh, freedom and capitalism are in America right now, much more perfectly than the Democrats you were mentioning. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think we disagree all that much. I, I mean, I think we're going to have to grapple with a couple of facts that are uncomfortable someday, you know, the historians are. Uh, that, you know, for example, China brought more people out of poverty probably more quickly than at any time in history, right? Um, and and the, 
they're certainly, you know, showing that there's an adaptability in the model that people didn't expect. Although we probably do have to differentiate between the economic communism system and then, and then the more totalitarian governmental one, because while they have an ideology that's, you know, communist, communist party, they've certainly stepped away from uh, a lot of what was in Marx, uh, although they stepped away from that long before. But, uh, you know, so, but when we, so, but, uh, so let's take Cuba then, which, you know, I think has adhered a little more closely to the original, you know, economic model. And yet what we're seeing with Corona, whether it's taking in cruise ships or sending its doctors overseas once again, is that this evil enemy, you know, whatever they have, you know, 10 million people, this tiny little country that we've made into a monster, you know, it, it is showing itself once again to be arguably for all its flaws, more humanitarian, uh, more forward on certain things like education and, and medical care than we are. So it's, it's fascinating. And what, you know, so having been to Cuba, what do you make of that as you watch it happening again in 2020, if you see it that way? Well, I mean, you're really talking about a basic truth of the human experience, which I dare say is acknowledged in a lot of the, even in the mega churches uh, in the Christian tradition, uh, that sin is, is uh, does not have a country label. Uh, sin does not even present itself as sin all the time. Uh, you have to struggle with it within people who present as very virtuous. Uh, you know, I'm not saying this is the only way to think about it, uh, but certainly since we always or our leaders always invoke basically a, a, a Christian notion of morality, uh, the fact of the matter is it's, it contains a warning uh, that labels, that presentation, that appearance, that PR should not be confused. Don't confuse the thing being sold with the thing itself, okay? And uh, those Southern Democrats that I mentioned before were blatant racists. You hardly ever hear anybody in the Democratic Party mention they're the ones who did the lynching. They, you know, they're the ones, uh, you know, who uh, oppressed black people so viciously. They were called Democrats. We don't mention that because the label is now inconvenient. We want the label party. Also, uh, you know, Eisenhower, we haven't talked about him much, but, you know, uh, arguably more peace oriented uh, than any a democratic president and yet came out of the military and was a war hero and so forth. Uh, so those contradictions are always there. And I think the absurdity of um, the book that I wrote with Marie Seitlin, who has been a professor at UCLA and before that was at Princeton and at Berkeley, a brilliant, brilliant uh, scholar and uh, Latin American specialist, among other things. We wrote a book and, and the uh, American version, the Grove Press, was called Cuba, an American Tragedy, and the Penguin edition, international, uh, no, the American version was Cuba, Tragedy in Our Hemisphere, and the Penguin edition was Cuba, an American Tragedy. And it's a book that we wrote just, the first edition came out before the missile crisis, and then the revised edition, the Penguin edition, came out after it. And our whole argument was that American policy created what was happening in Cuba that, that we thought was tragic. Uh, 
and that this was actually our unwillingness to have experiments in the world that we couldn't control uh, and how to do life. And I'll give you, before I get back to Cuba, India, China was one such example. Uh, we had an idea that democratic India, communist China, this was the two things, freedom or, or, or totalitarianism. You look at the situation now, you could make the argument that China is maybe freer than India. India right now is being run by a Trumpian figure who's playing the religious card of intolerance and uh, uh, much more coercive in a way. China seems more given to the market and to what the market demands and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, the contradictions of the Internet, it's hard to block ideas. But no one any longer talks about India and China as this clear contrast, even though that was for much of the Cold War, one was clearly democratic, one was clearly totalitarian. We don't think of it quite that way. Well, Cuba never fit that model. Cuba, as I said before, was an expression of nationalism against a mafia-run dictator who was in the Catholic Church looked the other way, the only institution that otherwise mattered there. It was deeply corrupt. Castro himself had been a serious Catholic. He was offended by the moral corruption, you know, the, the prostitution, the drugs, the mafia. And the, and the Cuban Revolution was really fought uh, against decadence, if you like, uh, and, and the notion of a pure Cuba in which your, uh, your women are not exploited, in which your young people are not uh, are driven by drugs and crime and so forth. And he certainly was, of course, at Allende in uh, Chile, there are many others, uh, you know, you just had it now uh, in Bolivia, uh, where anytime somebody emerged anywhere in the world, Tito is another example, where they had some genuine nationalist urge to do it their way. Castro wanted to do it Cuban way, okay? Uh, you know, Tito wanted, he invented Yugoslavia, and it was going to be a Yugoslavia way, uniting the Croatians and Serbs and so forth. And we were always at war with self-determination for any other people. The only self-determination that we accepted was the self-determination of white Christian America. That's what we uh, made noble. We said, this is the center of virtue. We'll cut some immigrants in. We'll cut people who are not white. We'll cut women in under pressure, under pressure. Uh, but, you know, we're the center of the dawning of the, the city on the hill, the new age. And that's been embraced. And anybody else. So, therefore... We are not asking for self-determination. We are actually championing universal values, you know, freedom, democracy, uh, uh, so forth. And anybody else, they're only championing narrow nationalism. Even when the French dared object to the U.S. involvement originally in Iraq, we attacked French fries, right? We denigrated the French. So anytime anybody in the world has dared to, to do their own self-determination, in a way that corresponds to some notion of their own national needs. Uh, and certainly China is an incredible example. I mean, Chinese are driven by a notion of China. You know, China is the uh, Zhongguo, the middle 
kingdom, the middle of the world. Uh, and their, uh, their notion is China's time has come. And China was divided uh, in the century before the last one. We all know about that, Shanghai and everything. And then it was divided by corruption and tribalism. And yes, there's a great national pride of finding a Chinese way, you know, uh, and we deride it every time it happens in the world. You know, we are threatened by any notion of other people making their own history, let alone trying to make world history. That's the disease that we have lived with. And this movie that you're involved in, that you describe in one of your emails, what is it called? The Meat Grinder? That's right. Yeah, the Meat do Grinder documentary. That's right. Well, that description that was in your email this morning when I read it struck me as a defining image of the American empire. We are a meat grinder. We think we can go anywhere in the world and destroy everything in our way, and it's liberating for these people. I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam after the bombing. I saw the people with their arms blown off in the hospitals and the madness and what was done uh, to that society. And, and other people who went, you mentioned Jane Fonda before, and they come back, they're called traitors for daring daring to suggest that the carpet bombing of, of Vietnam is genocidal, you know, daring to suggest that. But that's really been the issue. We have it's torture. You know, we, we tortured in Vietnam. Nobody ever even talks about that. You know, Tony Rousseau, who was with Daniel Ellsberg and releasing the Pentagon Papers, what he was doing at the Rand Corporation was reading the reports of torture the witness interrogation of captured Viet Cong and so forth. That's what turned him against the war, you know. But do we ever hear anybody talk about Vietnam as a time of torture, which was systematic, and we were intimately involved with the Michigan State Project and everything from the creation of the GM administration from the very beginning? You don't hear anything about it. So I think the real illness at the heart of the American soul is the notion of American exceptionalism. It gives you a get-out-of-jail-free card for anything you do, anything. Dropping the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, torture, whatever, whatever you're overthrowing governments, creating mayhem, being what Martin Luther King called the major purveyor of violence in the world today. That's what Martin Luther King said shortly before he died. He had to condemn his own government on Vietnam because it is, in his words, the was the major purveyor of violence in the world today. Well, you three guys were involved in that violence intimately, right? And what was the justification for that violence? Uh, even when it's considered unneeded, wrong, wrong uh, what do they say? We made a mistake. Me lie was a mistake, right? Uh, you know, uh, Abu Ghraib, a mistake, right? That's the great cop-out. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's always an anomaly, according to the public narrative, uh, when in reality, all of this has been just of a piece with America's empire in general. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. 
And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not.